0: So then, if you awaken from this illusion, persistence of vision.
1: Hello, folks, and welcome to the Persistence of Vision podcast. We have a website, and you can go to that website at pov-publishing.com, where you can uh, read comics by world-class artists. You can read essays and poetry. You can check out all the links to our past podcasts with all the fantastic guests that we've had up till now. Um, And uh, what else? There's links to our books where you can purchase The Goddamn Fool by LBDO and Why So Much by Lance Fever Myers. I am Lance Fever Myers. And I am L.B. Dio. L.B., who do
2: we have today, and what book are we discussing? Today we have one of the most notorious figures in the annals of American crime, Mr. Brenner himself, and he will be discussing The Mystic Arts of Erasing All Signs of Death by Charlie Houston. So, prepare yourself and prepare the rest of your dirty family. (laughs) Brenner, what do you have to say for yourself? Um, hi, it's really good to be here with
0: you guys uh, today, uh, especially since I'm eating a Tiff's Treats. Oh, God, was that advertising?
2: We're going to be shut down now. Tiff's, um, if you
1: want to sponsor us, that we would be totally fine
2: with that. Those things brought are by, good. Brought here by Union Brooks, our super intern and cookie delivery man. Hello, Union.
1: Hello. <laughs> so tell us what's so special and amazing about this particular book that you chose to, to speak to us about
0: today uh, Wow, um, so many things This is a, a mystery, it's a thriller, it's a modern noir, as they call it um, It takes place in California, around Los Angeles and thereabouts um, It's written by Charlie Houston who, until I read this, I had not heard the name of uh, which is amazing to me, that he's not... As household a name as Stephen King say or William Goldman or or Margaret Atwood, it makes no sense. And that thing about no matter how hard you work, no matter what talent you have, unless there's that spark of luck in there too, you're you're fucked. It's true, or else he (laughs) would be at that level. Uh But so I hadn't heard about this guy. I didn't know a damn thing about it. But I didn't know about Lenny Kleinfeld either. Mm. That's because Lenny. Lenny has a couple of books out. Back in the day when I found his stuff, he was pretty much unknown, except in certain Hollywood circles where he's been writing uh, screenplays that never get produced. But over the transom or through the transom at the Chronicle came this book. Uh, It was called, what is it called? Some Dead Genius. Mm. By Lenny Kleinfeld, and it landed in our slush pile of books. And nobody was touching, and it was going to go into the recycling bin or something after a couple of months. And I thought, oh, that look, looks kind of cool. i picked pick this up and read it in my spare time, which I had a scotchy of back then. Uh-huh. And I read it. <laughs> what is a scotchy? Oh, that's a, a, a small amount, a tiny, a, a minuscule portion of a thing. Thank you. Yeah, Skoshy or scosh, maybe you say it. And uh, speaking of Stephen King, I think some of his characters use it. Although that's not where I picked it up. God damn it. Okay. Um, so where were we? Oh, right here at this fine, fine expanse of glass and chrome that is your major table for recording. Um, yes. So I have this book and I read this book and I'm like, wow, this book is incredible. I've never heard of this guy before, Lenny Kleinfeld. Wow, I, I want to read more things by him. Oh, what else has he got? I do some Googling and check him out and it doesn't have a thing. And and there's really no hits on, on his Some Dead Genius book. And I look at the the book and it's, it's published by some weird maybe offshoot of a, a division of a medical publisher or something. But So I write a a review about it because people need to know. And then eventually um, another book comes out by him, and Lenny himself gets in contact with me because I wrote this review and nobody else is reviewing his stuff, and it's so good. Anyway, months later, I'm looking for something for our uh, July is Crime Month that Robert Ferris runs at the Chronicle once a year, July is Crime Month. And I think, hey, Lenny's writing these uh, mystery books that are awesome, And, you know, he's a professional published writer. He's out there doing screenplays and stuff in Hollywood. I'll ask him, what are his 10 favorite books? Mm -hmm. And we can run that as a listicle. This title is among them. Just the title itself, I'm like, oh, wow. Lenny, you know, what, what book do you think I should read from your list? Because I'm thinking maybe this one, The Mystic. And he's like, yes, that's the one above all things. Tell us the full title again. The Mystic Arts of Erasing All Signs of Death. It is quite cryptic and quite alluring. It is. It also has that, that throwback to when you're a kid and you're reading Doctor Strange for the first time, the master of the mystic arts. And I thought, oh, mystic arts of all signs of death. It
2: also sounds like a, a very beloved uh, pamphlet that you yourself wrote, Brenner. Oh, yes. An
0: instructional thing. Yeah, it does. It does <laughs> kind of sound Tell like us that title, please. Oh, God. Five Simple Steps to uh, Greater Joy in This World of Sorrow. Beautiful. Uh, thank you. Um, but so, and as weird as the title sounds, it's exactly descriptive and not even more than that on some level because it's about when there's a homicide or something, when somebody is killed or not even by murder, when somebody dies in ways that splatter body bodily fluids or, or destructions in the scene, the You know, the CSI people come and they check that out. Is it a homicide? Is it an accident? Whatever. And then they leave. There's still a mess. Who cleans that shit up? Well, there are teams. There are professional teams that do that. And sometimes they're at ragtag operations. And sometimes they're in direct competition over the turf of who gets to clean up the homicide here. That's where this starts.
1: Right, right. It's so odd. It's so odd. So off. It's, it's like a... Uh, The gang fight in uh, Anchorman or something. (laughs) It's like cleaning crews fighting over turf. It's like a really interesting and weird spin on the whole thing.
2: It's also a little like the old days in New York, uh, in the days of gangs of New York, when the fire department was a private organization and there would be other fire departments and they would actually duke it out, physically (laughs) punch it out at the scene of a fire, and sometimes the building would burn before it was decided who was going to get the paycheck for uh, stopping the fire.
0: <laughs> oh, that stuff is great. But,
2: yeah, so um, you mentioned
1: uh, comic books, and, and uh, Charlie Houston is actually a comic book writer as well, right? Yeah,
0: besides all the novels he's he's uh, written, well... A couple of which are at least on this level, which is scary to say, (laughs) and the other ones they're maybe a little bit less, which is also to say better than ninety-five percent of the stuff you're ever going to read anyway. Mm. He's also written um, Ultimates. He's written a a Wolverine graphic Uh, novel, Um, and Uh, those are amazing too.
1: Right, Moon Knight, I think, a reboot Ah, of Moon Knight or something like that. Um, Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. But uh, which I think when I read that it made perfect sense because reading this book uh, it did have a little bit of a comic booky feel in that it was it was offbeat there was a lot of uh, a lot of the narrative is coming from the uh, the dialogue mm-hmm. um, which maybe talk a little bit about that because I thought I found that to be I mean that's always fun and interesting when a, an author can craft a narrative uh, from just what is being said mm-hmm. uh, you know like, uh, te- what is it? Show don't tell, or whatever it is. You know, yeah, like, exactly, right, exactly. Um, but I felt like this one was was actually much more so the case than than what you get. Um, a lot of times with a, a first-person narrative
0: oh absolutely and that's true of, of all his uh, all his books the the uh, blurb on the back here from the New York Times among the other blurbs says Houston writes dialogue so combustible it could fuel a bus and characters crazy enough to take it on the road <laughs> which I, I guess is clever but uh, it's um, it's yeah kind of accurate too uh, because it is it's it's not just combustible it's it's exact and it's exact for every person it's not just somebody like Okay, sometimes me, I will just put in a "you know" or a something like that when I'm writing dialogue, and it's cheap and it's easy. He never does a cheap, easy thing. He has people speaking like people speak, mm-hmm. and all people are different, and all people talk differently, and he fucking nails it every time. Oh, it's <laughs> um, yeah. Why
2: don't you Why don't
0: you read an excerpt for us? All right, and this is not even people talking. This is just the interior monologue of the main character, and even itself is well, you'll see. And this is this is our main character Webster Fillmore Goodhue Webb, who is uh, trying to come to terms with some stuff. Here's the thing about witnessing something truly awful. It sucks. Here's the thing about witnessing a small child being shot in the side of her face and having most of the rest of her face smeared on your clothes and covering her body with yours because some part of your brain has registered the fact that she's been hit by a bullet and you suddenly find out that you are more than willing to have the next bullet hit and kill you if it means that she'll not be harmed any further. The thing about that is that it hurts when the next bullet doesn't come. You end up thinking about it a lot. When you're not thinking about that second bullet, the one you knew might come and therefore could do something about, you are actually, in point of fact, still thinking about it. You don't really think about anything else. Some of your brain, in order to keep you focused on things it needs you to do, like breathing and eating and such, builds little facades to place over the surface of the world, perfectly detailed overlays that mimic the world you lived in before you had little girl face on your clothes. Illusions as painstakingly crafted as the relic old-world street fronts on studios, studio-back lots. Scrims of normalcy that keep you walking and talking and breathing and eating. And because that's what you perceive, the hyper-reality you inhabit, it's the behavior of everyone around you that seems out of sync. I'm okay, man. What the hell is everybody else's problem? Why is everyone acting so weird? But some other part of your brain knows it's a fake, and knows as well who is responsible for the fake, and knows that you can't keep existing in a fake world propped up on wobbly jack stands in front of the real. Sooner or later, a stiff wind will come and blow it down on top of you. That part of the brain sends out messages, bits of code meant to remind you of what's behind the sets, scrawled missives, don't get comfortable. This all has to come down someday. Don't open that door. There's nothing behind it. The gap between those two parts of the brain is dark and deep, narrow but wide enough by some inches to fall into and be lost. But you're not thinking about any of that. The two worlds you're walking in are just background to one thing, one thought carved into endless variation. Where is that second bullet? When is it going to hit me? and make me useful again. Always you're looking, whether you know it or not, for that opportunity, that chance to do it over again, a dream that will never come true, a shot at taking the bullet and saving the innocent girl or a girl not so innocent.
1: Ah, beautiful.
0: Which sets up the whole thing, or returns you to the whole thing about this woman that he's gotten entangled with, as in a usual film noir, um, who is not so innocent.
2: That was Brenner reading Charlie Houston uh, with a little uh, critical commentary by my dog, Lord Byron. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful stuff. Tell us more about this book, Brenner.
0: So uh, Webb is a dude who, um, I guess he's in his... Early to mid twenties, maybe late twenties at most, and um, he's he's a slacker. He's had he, he comes from like a, like a character we know. He comes from circumstances, and uh, he's just doing nothing with his life. But you know, even when you're doing that, you need to have some way of supporting yourself, unless you're gonna spiral down into nothingness. And so he gets hooked up with, uh, is it his brother, is it a cousin, is it a friend, it's somebody, maybe it's a high school friend who runs one of these um, these cleaning organizations that clean the homicide things. And he goes out on a, uh, on a call to clean something up that seems like it's a suicide, and that woman is there because she is the, uh, she's the daughter of the person that is dead. And then after they've the team has cleaned all that, he goes back and she calls him because there was like a bit of a spark between them, but uh, like with all femme fatales and all film, in most film noirs is uh, is that an innocent hey let's hook up or is something deeper going on with a whole bunch of bullshit that's been buried for years and has to do with. Uh, oddly enough shipments of almonds internationally and human trafficking it's just wow
1: so we, we you mentioned well we talked a little bit about, uh, about comic books and um, film noir and then we heard a, a sample that is very very dark and very um, emotionally b- brutal in many ways but when when you talk about you know violence and there's a lot of gritty violence and, I mean he reads Fangoria magazine for crime and talks very in depth about like what what he's reading and what what you know what the pictures show um but the the violence is sort of offset a little bit by the tone and i want to talk a little bit about like what it means to have violence in a very real sense and violence in, when it's in the context of noir mm mm-hmm. It's different. It's a different feeling. It's sort of like a, you know, the way when you talk about murder in one sense it's it's just almost unspeakable, when you talk about it in the sense of like a who done it, it takes on a fun element, right? Hmm. I mean, there, I think there is a little bit of like cartoonishness to the way violence gets portrayed in a noir film or a noir book as as the case may be.
0: I find myself uh, uh, on, uh, it's rather unnerving, but on the exact opposite side of you at oh, this right? point, yeah. Okay. One of the things I like about noir is that, to me, it it takes away the uh, it takes away the cartoonishness. Maybe maybe a different kind of cartoonishness where it overemphasizes the seriousness and the consequences. Mm-hmm. But like you see action movies and stuff, and people are getting shot and killed left and right, and it's like, yeah, whatever, you know, it's just a prop. Uh, whereas here, when somebody gets killed, it has, it it has uh what's the word? Consequences. There's there's a word I'm searching for. R starts with an R. Ramifications. ramifications. <laughs> it right, has yes. ramifications right. all through a person's, uh, person, all through a person's sense and their psyche, and and if it's done right, it simultaneously has those ramifications through the rest of the plot. Mm. Okay. Uh, the, the, when they when they say oh it's gritty uh, noir is gritty yeah to me grit means real and 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 cartoony means teflon and just gliding over the surface I see I, okay so,
1: yeah I don't know I I think um what the point I was trying to to get to is the sort of um well I feel like like noir almost has a cartooniness to it in that. It's become such a tro- there's tropes mm, mm-hmm. in in that and that we all come to expect and we all come to know and and in in some ways that can be uh, a salve. Yes. To to like the like to what you say is the grittiness or the uh, like. Okay. Does that make
0: sense? That yes, and that I agree with completely. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's like you you have a. It's almost like a when when a dog has wears one of those thunder shirts because of a storm, you're 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 feeling comforted by the stricture, almost, of, of the plot or of the, the tropes that are known in war.
2: Yes, there's a, there's a sense that uh, the violence may be very disturbing and, and very powerful, but at the same time, it is so integral that if it were not there, you wouldn't be thinking, oh, thank goodness right I mean, if if the violence were removed from this book you wouldn't say oh that's a much better book because there's no violence and there's no sadness no no on the contrary the the strength of the book comes from from this darkness and the and, and the exploration of the darkness and the exploration as you said of the effects that this violence has on real people absolutely absolutely um what the hell am i thinking of
1: now well i think there's there's also an like an absurdity that's rolled up into it that sort of also um, kind of knocks you off balance to where you're not necessarily like uh, fixated on the brutality or the humanity of, of this, of the murders that are, they're that occurring or the, mm. or the, the dark, you know, violent aspects of, of, of the book in the same way that something like, uh, you know, like the, the, abs- the absurd changing of scenery. I think, the best ways, maybe, to c- compare for our listeners out there. To me, it made me feel like a Big Lebowski, the Big Lebowski, mm-hmm. or like Chinatown.
0: Right. Yes. Uh, yes. Exactly. You know, these,
1: exactly. Um, you know that are it, it's there's this really absurd surreality to it. Um, maybe speak a little bit about, about that aspect, or how, okay. how, how that how that struck you.
2: Oh yes, and I was just going to say, uh, you talk about the surreality. I mean, the job that this guy has, he's confronted by. Uh, violence that is so grotesque and so bizarre that it does take on a well, it's a little like in Quentin Tarantino in uh, in uh, say Kill Bill, where he has chop someone's head off and he'll just tell them to pump out ten times the real amount of blood that a body contains, mm-hmm. and he's trying to get a comic and bizarre effect. And that reminded me of scenes in the book where they're describing. The incredible effects that uh, hydrodynamics can have on a bullet wound mm-hmm. and you see a person whose head literally explodes and things like that. and you see this and and so yes, we, we we're talking about very, very human situations, and you have the 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 deceased's girlfriend sitting there in the room sobbing. but at the same time, there's something about hearing these these physical effects of violence that is so. Strange that it kind of almost takes you out of it for a minute oh sure
0: absolutely I, I think it's um one of the one of the things that the the grit and the realness that's required by noir is because often the plots and and sometimes just the circumstances around the plots will seem absurd because it usually doesn't happen mm. but we we all know from our lives how they say well I couldn't write that in a novel no one would believe it of course they wouldn't <laughs> but and yet things like that happen all the time yeah so if you're going to write that if you're going to write a dull boring thing that happens to everybody you could do it in a like a fakey way and, and people would still say well of course that happened but if it's something that's bizarre and unusual even though it happens you have to give it like Extra reality—you mm. have to get into the into the details to nail it down, right? To keep it from floating off into cloud cuckoo land.
1: Well, so what about the setting here? I mean, I you know when you consider the fact that it's L.A., mm-hmm. right? Um, and that adds to the fe- the, the idea of uh, like the similarity to *The Big or Chinatown or something like that. Uh, there's something about L.A. There's something about that uh, in noir, in the context of noir. What is it about the setting? What, t- talk to us about how, how that flavors the novel.
0: Well, it's, it's a big city, and it's a big sprawling city. Uh, so there's that just that you can have all sorts of levels of complexity going on just from a, from a tactical level where things might happen, how things might be interrelated and how a whole bunch of shit might be going on over here that doesn't seem to be connected to a whole bunch of shit going on over in this <laughs> other place and yet it is and, yeah. and it comes as something of a surprise. Also, the idea of instead of New York or Chicago, it's L.A. Hey, land of sunshine. Right. So anything you do, dark, is going right. to be a, a beautiful juxtaposition. Right. Um, and now I'm, see, I'm blocked.
1: City of, Broken dreams, maybe. There's some, like, bitterness. In, oh, yeah. In being surrounded by a certain, um, you know, like, uh, Disneyland-ish kind of mentalities. And, yeah. Right.
0: I've I, I read this thing, I think it's been, like, seven or eight years ago now. Mm. So I'm not maybe remembering uh, exactly, but I think also the, the protagonist, Webb's father was part of that whole thing. A script doctor? A a script doctor, and his dreams were broken, and now Webb has to deal with his dad being uh, really a (laughs) pissant bastard of a a father, partly because his dreams were crushed. Uh, Yeah, so there's that too, that whole thing of what L.A. does to everybody. Sure, sure. Which, uh, just as an aside, um, I can't imagine it being what L.A. does to people or what Hollywood does to people, being ever covered better than than Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Oh, right. Jesus, yeah. God, that movie, <laughs> if we're talking about movies. Oh, also, in, in case he's listening, because somebody might listen, Zack Snyder, <laughs> is that the guy who did Watchmen? <laughs> Okay. Come at yep. me, Zack Snyder. You fucked it up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, because of what we're talking about, because Watchmen, the, the novel uh-huh. by, by Alan Moore, yeah. and, and he writes out the scripts a line by line almost. Look, Dave Gibbons, you got to draw this right here in this panel right now and then do this and this. So, he, so it wasn't just by chance ever or, or, or the brilliance of collaboration. It was more. And he didn't um, shy away from showing violence and gore and blood in that novel. And then Snyder takes this thing to do it to the big screen, and on the one hand, he's almost slavishly devoted to reproducing panel by panel by panel. Bless him. That's great. The only time, it seems to me, except for the the no cosmic squid at the end, thank God, um, that he deviates is when he shows extra violence and extra gore gratuitously that was unnecessarily unnecessary because that's what gratuitous means but that was never anywhere in the novel and 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 it's it's beyond gratuitous it's beyond unnecessary it's it 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 ruined so many moments and things instead of let's linger here and see how things settle in the characters or settle in just the film itself let's squirt some more blood in their face are you trolling our listeners? I, I might be, but uh, as as Tim Doyle would say, fight me. <laughs>
1: All right. All right. Speaking of, of other works and, and maybe even, you know, comparing, you know, using this as a branching off, I, I've, I've heard his work, Charlie Houston, that is, be compared to, you know, uh, William Burroughs. Okay, yes. Uh, well, I think you even mentioned Stephen King. Uh, but for my own taste, as I was reading it, what I was being brought back to time and again felt Murakami.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Uh, like uh, Hard Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World, uh, or I uh, just recently read Near Dark. Um, and I, I feel like that, that of course, they're both working in the same sort of genre with the noir and the, the, the um, I guess it's the plot structure, but it's also the language it's the attitude of the characters, oh, all wrapped up, right? Have you? Have, are you? No, a I, I read
0: a, a couple of uh, short stories, and okay. he did. Uh, is it Sputnik Satellite, Satellite Sweetheart? Yeah, Sputnik I think Sweetheart.
1: That sounds, that sounds <laughs> well, I think he, his most uh, famous work is uh, Wind Up Bird Chronicles. Okay, yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. So, well, if you haven't read any Muricani, he's, I think right up your alley. Right. Thomas Pynchon as well, too. I feel like there's oh. a Thomas Pynchon wrapped up in there.
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Especially um, in, in light of uh, uh, what's Inherent Vice. Okay. Yeah. yeah, which which is kind of another take on L.A. and all that stuff. Right. Right. As as the uh, as '60s are slipping into the
2: '70s. So tell us uh, about why this book grabbed you as opposed to the person that you're not or someone else. And so what what how did you get hooked into this book besides the fact that it's a great book? Um. I was hooked into the book by
0: the, by the craft of the author, by, okay, here's, here's a dude who, uh, the, the, the protagonist, Webb, here's Webb who is kind of drifting and aimless, and I remember when I was younger and drifting and aimless, so that grabbed me right there, uh, which, you know, you can do in a cheap way and nobody cares, but when you do it as vividly and what I would say accurately as Houston does, you can't look away because you have that, that empathy. And even if it wasn't something that I could identify with on some level, he could be writing about you know, a fork sitting on a on a kitchen table that has no personality and no motive or anything. But just the way he describes it, I can't look away. he's He's that good of a, a wordsmith. Um, but then he's also a storysmith, and so he works this guy talking to. The, you know, the reader, the the, the the monologue in such a way that you're like, oh, really, what happens next? That whole thing that Stephen King, even when even when Stephen King is at his shittiest, <laughs> he's got that thing called the gotcha. Uh-huh. You know, you read along to a certain point. It's like, oh, my God, he's got me. What happens next? Oh, I, I don't care about these characters. In fact, this is shitty writing. And these characters are cardboard. But what happens next? What happens? Right. And then every right. now and then King turns out something that's that's worthy of a, a better writer than he usually is. And yeah. you know, if you know, then that's how he becomes Stephen King. You
1: know, you, you really hit on something there. I that I've been actually talking a lot with LB about lately um and it's that idea that And I'm not necessarily saying that Charlie's this way, uh, Charlie Houston's this way, but uh, that there are writers out there who know how to craft a story that don't necessarily bother with or they're maybe not capable of poetic language. And the idea of like a, a, a novel that is really, really poetically beautifully written versus a novel that where the pose, the prose is clumsy and uncomfortable and ugly and yet. It's like what you say, you get to the end of the chapter and you cannot put it down. You, you have to know what happens in the next, and it just draws you through the novel. Exactly. And I'd almost rather, or it's just maybe not rather, but it's easier to get through novels like that where you're just like really eager to see what happens. And it's all about crafting uh, an interesting arc. Mm-hmm. Tell me, how do you feel about those two?
0: I, I agree completely, and that is why, uh, to answer LB's question even, um, this is such a powerful book for me because, it, well, and several of his other novels. He bridges that gap. He bridges that gap. I, I, he, he could be writing a literary novel about a white middle-aged academic who falls in love with one of his students and i would give a shit only because it's charlie Houston writing it <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, or or um it what's what's the inverse of that uh i i i don't i don't know i don't know
1: Star
0: Wars. <laughs> but but he he does he does both he he, he hmm. He, he takes that writing ability, writing qua writing, the, the, the poetical structures, the, the ability to capture life in beautiful language, even if that language is not highfalutin language, even if that language is people of the streets or some idiot somewhere or, you know, some little kid learning how to use a shotgun for the first time, their voice speaks... Poetics that are beyond the character. Mm. And in their voice, I mean, even sometimes the dialogue. Because everybody, you know, everybody experiences the fucking world. And some of us can, can express that better. But those of us who can't express it better still experience it to that full capacity. That's, you know, that's what makes us human. So when you get a writer who can express it better... And can do justice by a character who can't. Mm. You get that. You get that raw look at the thing that is just. I find it utterly compelling.
1: Interesting. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, we're almost out of time. We're almost to the lightning round. But I will tell you this. When I started reading this, you know, I, I'd never heard of it, and I thought, why did Brenner read, want to read want us to talk about this particular book? I started reading it, and I knew immediately. It's very similar. I feel like it is a very similar style to what I see you working on when you when you post these uh, uh, little bits of dialogue that you that you post sometimes to social media, these little comic book things where the two characters are just sitting around talking or standing against the wall yeah. talking. It, it was very similar to me. So wow. um, there you go. Um, on to the lightning round.
0: Okay. If are my, you ready? Uh, if my blushing isn't going <laughs> to melt this microphone. Jeez.
1: Okay, here we go. Brinner, when yes. was the first time you remember falling in love with a book?
0: The first time I remember falling in love with a book, um, I, jeez, uh, you know, that would have been, probably I was five years old, and if you can count comic books is when i absolutely was reading spider-man back uh-huh. in the day okay um jonathan letham has this idea that there's a certain sector of american males uh, of a certain age sector because they were kids and reading comic books at the time when it happened um i was so effective uh, affected as as he notes by the death of gwen stacy
1: (laughs) okay (laughs) that all this
0: stuff that's come up later with all the revisionings it's no yeah
1: nothing compares okay i love it uh has a book ever changed your mind about anything
0: changed my mind about anything um i i huh maybe it changed it it helped me to Realized something later on after I'd read it. I mean, mm. when I first encountered libertarianism mm. in, in its uh, in its most, you might say, volatile form, even then I might have been more attracted to it if I hadn't been taught earlier from having read Ayn Rand that it's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sure. Fair enough. Has a book ever changed your life? Uh yeah, lots of lots of books have there. There have been times in my life, I think, where I, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know, um, I, you know, this thing. Oh, this book saved my life. I would have killed myself if not for this book. On some level, that's true. A couple of times, um, yeah.
1: Can you tell us uh, a, a title or a? Oh, an Jesus! In You're gonna
0: want to put me on a list so I don't mark <laughs> David Chapman somebody because I think uh, Catcher in the Rye. Oh would be yes, yes. One of them. And
1: there's a reason why that's a, a cliche. <laughs> yes,
0: yes, there is, and and all the rest of Salinger. Sure. And uh, and then um, uh, the oeuvre, as they say in France, of Harlan Ellison. Okay. I read Deathbird stories when I mm. was fifteen, and I was like, okay, things are as dark as I think. <laughs> but at least I know there's a couple other people on this planet that think the same way, yeah. so I'm not alone.
1: Okay. That's a, a, a that's a great thing to feel from a book that I'm not alone. Um, has a book ever made you cry?
0: Oh hell yeah! Um, even one now that I think is I would probably think is banal and ridiculous, but rascal about that uh, raccoon rascal <laughs> by Sterling North. Boy <laughs> has a it's it's kind of like the old Yeller yeah. of raccoon stories. Okay,
1: <laughs> I love it. Um, have you read a book more than once?
0: Uh, This is a thing between my wife and I, actually, uh, between my wife and me, Hmm. actually, that she will reread the fuck out of books Uh and rewatch movies over and over again. Uh And I... I, You don't do it. Not with with very few exceptions. So the answer to that is yes, (laughs) but only two books. Uh I reread We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. Okay. And I reread *Engine Summer* by John Crowley. Wow. And those okay. Are, those are probably my two favorite books. Okay. And they're making a, they're making a TV show of the Castle. They made that movie already. That that boat oh. has sailed, and it has been deemed unworthy. I'm not. I'm, <laughs> I'm not gonna watch it.
1: Well, uh, this this brings us to our final question of the lightning round, the, the the big million dollar question. Do you have any poetry committed to memory? Um, and no is a perfectly valid answer.
0: I do, but I had a lot more committed to memory. It's not really committed. it's It's that I can't get it out of my head. Um, I know that when e e Cummings, you know e. e. Cummings. Oh yes, yeah, well, when he was uh, <laughs> when he was like four or five years old, he wrote his first poem. His mom told him this later on or whatever. Or maybe he had a scrap of paper from when he scrawled on it at that age. Something about looking out the window and seeing a sparrow or whatever. And he wrote, see the birdie go, 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 with its little toe, toe, toe. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's what I remember. But I used to have committed to memory, being Brenner, of course, uh, Sylvia Plath's Lady Lazarus. Uh-huh, wow. What I didn't know is that another writer in town, uh, Brett Holloway, Brett Reeves, Brett Holloway Reeves, he's been married and divorced, and I think it's just Brett Reeves. <laughs> okay, <laughs> man with an eye patch. You maybe you know him. The eye patch would give it away if you did. Yes, and and oddly enough, like 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 uh, the Red Rider BB gun, his I think it was his brother or a childhood friend shot his eye out with one of those. Jeez. Yeah, but anyway, w- Brett and I were uh, a little tipsy, more than a little tipsy, at a party being held by, here's a professional writer these days, Kelly Sue DeConnick, when she used to live and be a theater person in this town. Mm. And for some reason, we both discovered that we knew Lady Lazarus, and so we stood there (laughs) in the middle of Kelly's living room, drunk off our asses, both declaiming the hold of Lady Lazarus. Beautiful. And then I backed up and I knocked over her stereo and it fell down and it broke. I don't know. She never asked me for any money, but oh god, (laughs) yeah, I love it. That's a great, that's one of the best
1: answers I've had to that question. So thank you for coming. We really appreciate you being here. It's been wonderful. All too quick, too suddenly over.
0: It's embarrassing (laughs) talking this much. Thank you so much. This is really an honor.
2: Wayne Allen Brenner, folks. Brenner. We love him. We love you, ladies and gentlemen. We admire you, uh, not only for what you have done, but for what you haven't done. We thank you for that. We thank Union Brooks, our super intern, for the cookies and for his excellence. We thank Brenner once more for his superiority and for, I thank Lance Fewer Myers for being my partner in crime on this little adventure. Uh, No, that's really nothing. Thanks. (laughs) You're embarrassing me. And good night.